welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. So, I mean, I've just been going here at Oak Hills for the last 14 years. We're from that section right there, 9 o'clock service. Our family uh, sits in whatever row is still available by the time the second song is going. That's about time we normally get here. Uh, professionally, I'm an executive leadership coach, and I've got a seminary degree. So I work with business leaders uh, and their teams to help leadership capacity and organizational performance. But part of what I get to do is work with ministry leaders. That's part of who I work with. And I have a deep appreciation for ministry leaders. And some of that I just got to spill out now. I'm really grateful for Pastor Mike Lucan. I'm grateful for a sabbatical. He's given his career to us here at Oak Hills. And the last three years can't have been easy. Masking, inside, outside, elections. I mean, all kinds of really harrowing issues for a pastor to have to lead a church through. And underneath all of that, we're still here. Meaning... I had issues. Most household had issues. COVID was really hard. And the whole point of all that they were doing as a church staff was to take care of us. And that couldn't have been easy. And we're still here, healthy and whole, which not every church can say. I really appreciate Mike. And I don't think I'm the only one. So I've got a request. This is sabbatical. It's getting close to the end. Still a little bit more time. But here's the request. Send Mike a note that says, I appreciate you and here's why. That's my request. You know what? And if you want to turn up the dial just a little bit, throw in a gift card so that uh, Julie and Mike could go out. And I think Julie will really like that. But send a note. Drop it off at the church. And if you're thinking to yourself right now, well, wait, what about all the other pastors on staff? You read my mind. I'm grateful for Manuel, Jordan. I'm grateful for... Alyssa and Colleen, I'm grateful for Dave and Zach. Send them a note. Let them know how much you appreciate their work. And let's not even stop there. What about all the staff? Melinda and Cody, Ashley, Stephanie, uh, Pat, Gary, Tracy, Sean, Angela. You know, nobody who works at Oak Hills does it for some generous compensation package and expense report doesn't exist. They're here out of a sense of calling to do a labor of love, and we are the beneficiaries of that. So let's express our gratitude and our appreciation. We clap, yeah. (laughs) Applause is good. Notes are way better. So like, let's let's do that. So uh, looking to uh, our slides, uh, this is not an eye test. This is Psalm 105 in its entirety. And if we quickly look at one, verse 1 here. Give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. This is the opening verse of Psalm 105, which is descriptive of what's to come. It's the trailer of what follows. It's also instructive. Saying, you reader, praise God. Make known the works he has done. So we're going to read what the psalmist did in fly-by fashion, super fast. We'll get a little context to go through the flow. But then I'm going to get to tell some stories of works that I've gotten to see God do. So if we look at the next verse, as we just kind of follow along, he gives this promise to Abraham. The next verse, we 
shoot on down, we look at his lineage of Joseph, and we go down after that, and what he did to send Moses, his servant, to release the Israelites from the Pharaoh who were enslaved. We go after that, and they're led for 40 years through the wilderness, uh, and God takes care of them, leading them with a pillar of fire and clouds, feeding them quail and manna, giving them all that they need to do. And we see after that, they actually make it to this promised land. God was faithful. He brought them where he said he was going to bring them. So the whole thing ends, praise the Lord. Start with praise the Lord, end with praise the Lord. It's all there. And we see this poet's description. The stuff that I didn't read right there is the poet's description of detail and language to actually deepen our understanding. But I just want to give the flow of what's there. The psalmist is saying, praise God, and let me tell you about all these magnificent things God did. Starting with Abraham, Joseph, going to Moses, going with the prom. All this stuff is there. Praise God. And so we look at this and we recognize God is great. And so why does this matter to us? The basis of our faith, you and me, is seen in the rearview mirror. We look back to what God has done, whether it was the formation of the nation of Israel, and we say, that's what God did, that's who God is, God is real, because look what God has done. We do that based on the past, but not only because of what God did in the Pentateuch, but also because of what God did in my life and your life during our lifetimes, even recent days. Because our faith, the basis of our faith is seen in the rearviewed mirror. It's hard to know what God's going to do next, and sometimes it's hard to see what God's doing today. But we look back and see, that's what God did. That's who I know him to be. I have a friend who actually keeps a journal of all the things God's done. And it's actually a record to go back and say, what? where is God? And even if God is around, you ever have those moments? And if you're able to go back and say, but what about that time when my spirit quickened? What about that time where God answered prayer? What about that time when this is totally inexplicable, except for God. What about that time when the truth rang true with conviction? That's where I know God was. And so we want to be able to remember what God's done in the light when we're in the dark. And we do that because faith is on the basis of what we see in the rearview mirror. God's at work. We've got to remember that and tell people about it. Tell the nations. That's what the psalmist is telling us to do. So I got to read a book a long time ago, Missional Renaissance by Reggie McNeil, and he had this phrase in there that really captured me. Spiritual journalist. A journalist is someone who is looking for a story. They get a lead. They track it down. They do research. Check their facts. Put it together. And they capture a story to be told, to report. And the idea of a spiritual journalist is someone who's Looking for the stories of God. Where are those stories? Because we live in a world that's optimized to amplify the message of the world. But when you're looking for God's ways and God's work, it whispers. And I don't know about you, but I want more of those stories. I want to be able to see those stories, report those, and base my life upon them and say, this is the God that I follow and live by. So what are those stories? Spiritual journalists. We need more. And that's actually a good practice for us to be investigative and to give the report because it builds our faith. So today, I get to be a spiritual journalist giving a report. 
But I'm pretty excited to do that. I've been getting to work with uh, some ministry with Afghan refugees here uh, in our own town of Sacramento. And basically today I'm just going to walk you through some of these stories I've been collecting over the last few months to praise God and to tell the nations what's been going on. But, you know, just starting with us right here at Oak Hills. So let me give you a little bit of background for starters. So it was 9-11. We all remember that when the United States went into Afghanistan to uh, go after al-Qaeda and the Taliban government that was harboring them. And after some time, it was ISIS going after ISIS. They did that with the help of Afghans. They needed the help of Afghans to translate, to cook, to be mechanics, do all this kind of stuff. And every time that they did, an Afghan who allied themselves with the United States was siding against the Taliban. And it was one year ago this week, August of 2021, that the United States had pulled out and the Taliban took over. It was one year ago this week. And the Taliban has a long memory. And so everyone who sided against them was on their vendetta list. And so you may remember the scenes of uh, the airport where people were coming through. uh, And there was a limited number of spaces on these airplanes and seemingly unlimited number of people who wanted to get on. And so every plane that went off just loaded to the hilt had people left on the outside and you may recall these grotesque images of people trying to hang on to the airplane wings ending up falling because they thought that was a better alternative than staying with the Taliban this was unexpected which means there was no preparation no place for these Afghan allies to go so a ad hoc makeshift evacuation effort followed 70,000 Afghan allies were evacuated So uh, you see uh, one of these families right here that made their way here to Sacramento. Because out of the 70,000 that were evacuated, 10,000 are coming here to Sacramento this year. Sacramento County is the highest populated uh, county in all of America when it comes to the Afghans. 10,000 are coming here. So here's a a family that's here. I'll tell you a story about one family. Uh, I changed the name, and it's not the family in the picture, but call him Akbar. Akbar, he's my age. When he was 18 years old, he was a fighter pilot. Best and the brightest, right? Entrusted with multi-million dollar aircraft in defense of his country. That's what he got to do. As his career progressed and time passed, he became a trainer and then a commander. He had seven kids, this family of nine. Three-story home, nine-bedroom home. They had a car. He was doing pretty well for Afghanistan. Place of honor, stature, repute. And then it was one month ago, or one year ago this month, when the Taliban unexpectedly started coming back to force, taking over from the outposts to the regions, all the way to uh, the capital of Kabul. And the lasting vestige was the Kabul airport. You remember the United States military had kind of had a perimeter, and that was it. So here is Akbar is out on the front line defending against the Taliban. We're talking about real ammunition. We're talking about real life-threatening danger. He's defending the line, and he gets orders to say, Gather your family and come back to base. So he hustles home, gets his family. The only thing each family member is able to bring is one backpack with as much as they could stuff in there. And what we see is they make their way to an outpost just like this. While they're there, we see the helicopters come and evacuate them from this outpost to Kabul airport. At Kabul airport, they get loaded on these Air Force cargo planes meant for stuff, not people. So you don't see any seat belts on there because there's no seats. They're sitting squatting on the ground. And Akbar took a flight from Kabul to Spain that lasted 15 hours just like that. They're in Kabul or they're in Spain for a little while before they come to the best our government could provide. It's military barracks. And so you see here, 
uh, military barracks. Tens of thousands of Afghans spent months in barracks like this waiting for the State Department to figure out what to do with them. Some of them are still there nine months, ten months, eleven months later trying to get sorted to figure out what's going to happen. So then what we see here is them landing in Sacramento. So Akbar's family, family of nine, is now in an apartment not too far from uh, Del Paso Boulevard in a two-bedroom apartment. A family of nine in a two-bedroom apartment looks a lot like that. They don't know the language, weren't prepared, and here they are. So I didn't know any of this in January of this year. It's not like I have a long history with any of this involvement. A friend of mine called me and said, hey, do you know what's coming to Sacramento? Because it's pretty big. Because I have no idea, but I know some people who do. And so we gathered together a number of organizational leaders who are ministries to refugees, and we got them together and asked if everyone knew each other. Does everyone know what's going on? Is there anything we could do about it? And the result of that meeting was uh, NorCal Refuge. It was a coalition that formed and a crisis response effort that followed. So I've gotten to be a part of this crisis response and coalition that didn't even exist until March of this year. So what NorCal Refuge is, our mission is to provide friendship and stabilization to families during their first six months here in the United States. We've got five objectives. It's relational. We want them to have friends. It's material. We want them to have an apartment that works. It's uh, health. We want them to know how to take care of themselves uh, with Medi-Cal, with drugstores and those kinds of things. Uh, it's empowerment. We want them to get on the bottom rung of the employment ladder so they can at least get a job, which is unskilled labor, because their education and background does not transfer without language. They're starting at the very bottom. And spiritual. We want them to be prayed for. We want them to hear about hope. And our strategy of doing this is hiring Farsi-speaking Christians. They're from Iran, who speak the same language and are able to just go there and be present in the same way that I wish I could if I knew the language and I had the time. I don't have either. But we're able to hire Iranian Christians for 20 bucks an hour to go do this really important work. Everything from setting up the internet to driving them to the doctor or anything in between. And you can imagine it's a massive amount. Our goal, NorCal Refuge goal, we want to, we want to stabilize 400 families. Average size of a family is about six or seven people. It's 2,500 people. But 400 families is what we want to do to stabilize them. And it costs $120 per month to do that. So we're building a sponsorship team. Uh, we want 400 sponsors to sponsor you know, $120 a month to last for a year. The NorCal Refuge, this crisis relief is not even going to be in existence after 2023. It's a very short-term thing, but the time is now. We need to do something about that. So... Um, so I want to kind of walk you through these stories of what we've got going on as a coalition. This is a map you see in the top right. That's Folsom Lake to give you a sense of you know, orientation. The red dots are all these different coalition members who are doing some really good work. So Arab American Learning Center, that's Pastor Ayed and his wife Manar. Uh, he's uh, from Syria, uh, kind of had to flee for his own religion, Muslim nation, and he's been doing ministry with the Arabic Church of Sacramento for about 20 years now, and that turned into an offshoot of uh, ministry to refugees. And it's, he's amazing. It's beautiful. They have the Refugee um, Service Support Center, just this office in Arden Arcane, where neighborhood of Afghans, they just show up and say, I need help making this phone call. I don't speak the language, but I work something out with this insurance that I got to get. 
or how do I fill out this, uh, how, how do I get food stamps that I need to register for? And so they just walk in and they have volunteers that help them do that. They have scads of other ministries that come out, and, but it's just a beautiful thing serving the refugees that are there. And God knew that refugees in Art and Arcade needed someone who would speak their language and be present. And so you see Riot and Menar and the whole team that's been built. Well, then you see Luke Voigt there on the right of Capital Community Athletic. Luke's an uh, international missionary veteran, and he comes back home to Sacramento, and he starts seeing refugee kids playing soccer in the park. These informal pickup soccer games turn into a formal soccer team. That soccer team multiplies, and now there's 18 sports teams in Capital Community Athletics. And there's a waiting list. There's only so many coaches and fields. They're trying to grow and change that. But God knew that these kids needed a place to play where they were safe and cared for and could do the love of the beautiful game. So God brought about Capital Community Athletics. Then you see, I want to give a shout out to Creekside Church in Elk Grove because they are a sister church of North American Baptist. All right, Creekside. They're in Elk Grove. There's refugees in Elk Grove. And so they've become a satellite site for uh, the Arab American Learning Center. And they've converted their property, a big part of their property, into a soccer field. So that Capital Community Athletics could be having soccer there. They heard a need, and so they expanded. It's a beautiful uh, campus used missionally. Then you see Healing Grove Health Center. That's Dr. Tom Stafford on the left. He had a call to be a medical missionary to the Middle East. Served there for a few years and found himself as a doctor in Rockland in private practice. He knew why God brought him back to Rockland last August. When the refugees started coming. And so he started Sacramento Healing Grove Health Clinic where uh, he's able to provide medical services to Afghans who can't afford to pay for it, but he knows how to make that happen. They're trying to develop, they're trying to build a clinic right now in the Art and Arcade area. They've got to find the property. They're kind of, you know, there's been a few false starts along the way, but they'll get it done. But in the meantime, he's doing house calls, and there he is right there doing one. God knew that there was going to be Afghan families in need of medical care. And so he brought forth Dr. Tom Stafford in Healing Grove. Afghanistan's a hard place. It's a war zone. It's still a war zone. And so Dr. Stafford sees kids and families who've suffered, you know, as a result. And they have maladies that carry over from being in a war. But... uh, it goes beyond that, too, when you talk about mental health. So imagine war going on for the better part of the last 25 years. One of the stories that I heard is there's military checkpoints all over the place. Uh, and what they'll do to uh, you know, aging boys is they'll pull up their pant leg and they'll look to see if they have hair on their legs. And if they do, it means they've reached the age of conscription. And right then and there, they're enlisted in the army. And right then and there, they join the fight. So you want to talk about the trauma of being enlisted in the army at someone else's determination of when you're old enough. But then on the other side, there's the trauma that a lot of the people that are now here in Sacramento who are part of the Afghan military experience, and that's they're the ones who pulled the trigger and killed their adversary. And that's traumatizing as well. And then you add trauma on top of that of having to evacuate at a moment's notice with no preparation or readiness. All of this just went so fast. All you get to do is bring your family in a backpack and here you are in a new land and a new language and a new culture. And that's traumatizing. So the Afghans who are here have been traumatized significantly. So on the screen here is Adam Shipp, founder of the Sacramento Youth Center. It's only three years old. And he's a youth trauma specialist. 
God knew that Afghan youth were going to need help with their mental health and trauma, and God provided Adam Schiff to do that. You see in the picture there, there's PlayStations, foosball, ping pong. They got a music recording studio. It's pretty awesome. And that's exactly what the youth want, but the thing that they need is the kind of help that's going to help them sleep through the night, and Adam's able to do that. So... World Relief Sacramento is is, uh, a big international aid organization helping the world's most uh, vulnerable. Uh, And here in Sacramento, they help resettle a lot of refugees of all kinds. And right now, there's an awful lot of Afghan uh, refugees that they're serving. Their secret sauce is working with churches who provide good neighbor teams. These are are teams from churches who say, we want to provide friendship and support. And whatever that means, we're game. And I'm happy to say Oak Hills is looking to start a good neighbor team this fall to work with World Relief. So if you look at World Relief, they have got the yellow uh, marker on there. But the number of churches they work with and the number of families that they serve, there'd be a whole yellow tent across that map if it was represented as such. So I look at this whole map and see a lot. But can I be candid for a moment? Afghanistan is this hard scrabble speck of a place on the other side of the globe. Pretty much the only time you hear the word, it's associated with trouble. There's no reason for me to have any affinity or affection for Afghanistan. And you probably don't either. But I want to be a spiritual journalist. So I watch. And I read in scripture that God loves the Afghans. But I see this map and the faces that it represents. And I feel that God deeply loves the Afghans. it, It just, it gets me. And God touches me with his love for the Afghans. And I'm really grateful that God has chosen to include me in what he's doing in his love. That's very significant to me. This map shows, you know, kind of the overview of all the coalition partners. They've been here for, you know, they've been here before the crisis that started a year ago. They're going to be here after the crisis. That'll be over in about a year. Uh, this is, there's good work happening. It's going to continue. But I want to highlight the crisis effort, NorCal Refuge. And so Arash and Eileen are in the picture there. Uh, Arash and Eileen are from Iran, born into Muslim families. Uh, Arash has his master's degree in international relations, really sharp guy, uh, served in management in the quarry industry in Iran. A friend told him about Jesus. It stuck. He told some of his friends about Jesus. It stuck. Before long, there's a secret church in Iran of 50 people that he's leading. Well, uh, one occasion, other peers leading similar efforts were together meeting in secret, or so they thought, and uh, Iran's agents came and picked up the whole lot of them, 13. They threw him in jail. Arash spent 30 days in jail. His wife had no idea what happened, no indication what happened, but she knew what it was going on. While in jail, he was mistreated. While in jail, he was given death threats. And after 30 days, he was brought before the judge, and the judge told him, you're sentenced to one year. 
Well, before that sentence could begin, Arash and his wife Eileen were able to escape. They got into Turkey. After six years of going through the United Nations refugee status acquisition process, they made it to the United States. They've now been here for three years. And Arash and Eileen were uh, the first ones to be part of the NorCal refuge effort to help these Afghans. So Arash makes his way to uh, the apartment complex on the first day you know, that he's out doing it, and he's knocking on doors, meeting people, and the first person he meets is a guy who has terrible back pain. He can't even stand, can't walk. He's on the floor. Arash has background as a masseuse, and so he's trying to alleviate some of the pain in that way, but he prays for him. And Arash gives the bold declaration that this day you'll be able to stand up and walk because God heard my prayer. Arash goes to you know, other apartments in the complex and crosses back again on his way out to see this guy standing up outside. That prayer had been answered. And from that day, Arash has been known as the one whose God answers prayer. Since that day, that was in April, since that day, Arash has done everything from set up internet to hug and kiss babies to uh, help people with medical problems, help people learn how to drive, take them to the DMV, get jobs set up. Uh, You see here, uh, this picture, he set up a a meeting with Sacramento County Sheriff after the Afghans were saying they don't feel safe in their neighborhood and you wouldn't either. There, one of the officers is from Afghanistan is going to serve as a liaison uh, to be helpful. Really big breakthrough. Jim Ortega from our church was helpful for that. Something else that uh, Arash has done with help of others is helped 60 people get employed, many of them at Walmart, which was his first job. And Alan Vakili's played a big part in that, filling out applications to Walmart in English for people who speak Farsi. Not an easy task. And so all of this good has been happening. And Arash has become known as a trusted person, a friend, but someone who could bring real help. I got to tell you, there's a certain amount of pride when you're able to assemble Sacramento County Sheriff to say, we got your back. That's some real help right there. So he's known, he's respected, he's appreciated. And in this next shot, you see this family here that was uh, pregnant and two weeks past their due date. And Arash went with them to the doctor to time, time to start talking about inducing. The family asked Arash to uh, name their baby. They wanted Arash to name the baby. So he chose Sarah. It's a name in Farsi, Afghanistan, and in uh, English. There's Sarah right there. Uh, You know, Sarah was Abraham's wife. God gave the promise to Abraham. He said, go from your country to the land I will show you. I'll bless you, and you will be a blessing. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And there's Sarah. And so you see, here's the family. Sarah's doing great back at home. Arash asked the question, uh, what can I do to help? The answer was, keep praying. We need your prayers. Arash is a man who's known that his God answers prayers. These are the stories that build faith. These are the stories that build faith, and I want to find more of them. But not only hear these stories, I want to be an actor in these stories. And I think I'm not the only one here who feels that way. So where do we find these stories? Because they're all around us. Man, this Afghan crisis is coming our way. It's kind of finding some of us, but... 
Here in Folsom, where there's not as many, God's at work there too. How do we find those stories? Well, whenever we see God at work, it's an invitation to join God. When you see God at work, it's an invitation to join God. One of the things that we might think is a good idea is to see God at work, like a story Sean talked about, which is right in the apartments I'm looking at right now. And we say, should I be a part of that? Let me go and pray and think about it. You know, sometimes the invitations God gives, the window closes. God's action is complete. Something else happens. And so it might sound like a good idea to actually go and pray and say, let me kind of check in on this. And sometimes that is. But here's a word of practical uh, advice. What if we pray in advance and say, God, I do want to join you. Show me where. Flip that whole thing around. And then when we see God join us, uh, when we see God invite us to join him, we have to make adjustments. We adjust to join God. We're not like children who say, God, come join me, come to my thing. That's what children do, right? Parents, come to me, come to me. Actually, when we're mature and adults, we actually go to the relationship we want to have. And that's a spiritual reality too. If you want to be closer to God, find where God is and then go to God. You know where he's working because you see him there. And one word, kind of like Sean was saying earlier, one word about the way God works. Uh, God doesn't do uh, random acts of kindness and senseless acts of beauty. God does kindness and beauty in abundance, but he's not anonymous. He does it for relationship because he loves the Afghans and he loves your neighbors and he loves you. He doesn't do it to be anonymous. When he sends that box of chocolates to his beloved, he wants them to know where it's from. And so we do the love of God in the name of God in appropriate ways. You know, you don't get crazy. But it's not just random and senseless. God's about relationship. And so when we talk about adjusting, there's a cost that comes to adjusting. We have to get out of our familiar pattern. We have to reallocate our time. We have to spend money. It might do something to our reputation. It might do something to our relationships. We need to adjust. But do any of us think that the kingdom of God will be built without cost? And so when we step out to adjust, to join God, there's risk involved. But that's where faith comes in. And faith without risk is dead. So we adjust to join God. And then we experience God's work. God's work, there's stories all over the place. But God's not like J.K. Rowling, you know, this brilliant author somewhere far away creating content for for us to consume. That's not the way God does his stories. He's a father who reaches out his hand and says, join me and let's see what we can do. And so we do that. We join God and we see what's going to happen. And then as a result, we see change happen. Change within us. Change around us. Shalom comes. And then after that change comes, we're hungry for God's invitation again in this whole virtuous circle that keeps going and going. So we started looking at Psalm 105. Praise the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. And here's a whole list of things that I've gotten to see as a spiritual journalist watching what God does. And I see God's love and God's action making all these things happen. And so it's an invitation for us to do the work of spiritual journalists ourselves, to be investigative and to report 
what we find because that's what builds faith because the basis of our faith is found in the rearview mirror. We just got to do a better job of capturing all those stories to build us on. And we want to go seek out those stories. And the way we do that is by looking for where is God at work? And then I want to go to him and join him with where he's at. I'm done asking him to just come where I'm at. Yeah, when we cry out, God will come and meet us where we're at. He promises to do that. But if you want a maturing relationship to be closer to God and part of building his kingdom, we go to where he's at. And then we have to make adjustments to do that. God's not, God's not done with us yet. And we're not to be satisfied with who we are and where we're at. God says, you know what he says? Follow me. So we make those adjustments to follow him. Then we experience God. And then we see change. And the kingdom of God advances. The kingdom of God is just where God reigns. It's where his will is in place. It starts in here. It goes out there. That's the kingdom we want to see. So I want to invite you to pray with me, but... I want to kind of give a disclaimer on this prayer. This isn't a ceremonial prayer. It's not just to close your eyes and let him finish. This is an actual invitation to, if you want to say, God, I want to look for you, and when I find you, I'm going to follow you, that, that's what I'm going to pray. You don't have to. But if you do, put on your helmet. And that's the kind of prayer God likes to answer. All right, let's pray. God, you are good, loving, and worthy, and we're so glad. So God, we're not just saying this, we mean this. We expect you to hear this when we say, I'm looking for you. I'm looking for where you're at work. So will you show me where you're at work? when I see you, I want to join you. And to the best of my ability, I'm going to. Because I want to grab your hand, go with you, and see what we can do. God, hear our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.